My name is Cameron Milne and you are listening to Silent Studios, the podcast that gives an insight into the creative methods behind musicians, producers and audio engineers alike and how these original techniques are applied to a project of their own. Michael Carpenter has many strings to his bow. He is a solo artist, studio owner, producer and engineer and has worked with some of the biggest names in the music industry. In this episode, we take a glimpse into his creative world and the path he took when attacking one of his many country music projects. My name's Michael Carpenter and I'm a record producer, video maker, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist. Basically, if there's a job in the music industry, I've had a go at it. I work out of Love Hurt Studios in Leichhardt here in Sydney. I've been making records for 25 years now. One of the big things about where I come from as a producer is I'm a music fan. I come into record producing with no real sense of wanting to just be a sort of producer. And so I've done everything from heavy rock records down to acoustic, folky, bluegrassy kind of things to I've done three or four full classical orchestral uh, to jangly pop to alt country to country music and, and pretty much everything, acapella things, you know, voiceover stuff. So I've been pretty lucky in the fact that I've made a whole bunch of different records, but certainly over the last couple of years I've been focusing more on country music and alt country music around Australia. It's certainly a lot more fun to do a variety of things than just to do the one thing because then you start to hate the thing that you do or the thing that you choose and you want to do other things. I never hate any aspect of anything I do, ever, and I haven't ever. Michael's early experiences in the audio industry have shaped the way he works today. The lessons and techniques he learned from using early analogue equipment are still relevant and applied in the digital realm. I'm a 50-year-old guy who's been making records for a long time and I grew up doing my first sessions on tape as, as a musician, first of all, and then as a studio guy, I went from 4-track to 8-track to 16-track tape machines and I had to learn about signal flow and I had to learn about how to make tape work and how to keep noise down and, and I had to learn how to mic up guitar amps and drum kits and I did all that sort of stuff in my formative years. And then, of course, it got to around 2001, 2000, 2001, where I was 33 years old and had been making records for a while at that point, and I went all digital. So I'm completely in the box world and have been for a long, long time, mainly because I've got tons and tons of great outboard, but most of my clients don't come to mixing sessions. I would say 99.5% of my mixing sessions are unattended now which means that I have to be able to recall. And that's a critical aspect of what I do in the fact that I can mix, send people a version of it, they react to it, and I can pull up mixes and react to them. One of the important things about my approach to producing is that I still approach things in a very old school way, even though I'm working with Beat Detective and dropping in and playlists and virtual amplifiers and auto-tune and stuff like that. I remember what it was like to make records on tape through a console. And so I still do think about things in a pretty organic way. I tend to be very, very instinctive. I don't really believe in demos. I believe in songwriting demos, but a songwriting demo, and I'm going to do a writing session later on tonight, and it's funny, we'll be doing it in my recording studio. We'll get to the point where the song is finished and we'll pull out an iPhone and we'll record our demo onto that, which we actually call, in my world, a work tape. And that outlines the song, the melodies, the chord progression, it's got all the important things so that when it's time to actually start to record, we actually go on record. I've, uh, from my point of view, I've found that the demo process is a, is a bit of a devil sort of process and the fact that I'll do a demo and I'll do it quickly and then when I'm making the record, I'm chasing the demo. And so I worked that out a long time ago, so I just start recording. For example, if we get to the end of today with the, the writing session and we go, this is sounding really good, I'm going to put this on the record that I'm making with you, I'll go, okay, well, let's go click track, 
guide piano or guide for this girl it'll be a guide piano and I'll get her to do a vocal. The other thing about that is ultimately she's a good singer. I'll go, that was a really good take of the vocal. Can we just do another couple of passes just in case? So it means I've always got to have good microphone plugged in ready to go, my signal chain ready to go and I've got to be instinctive. So my job as a producer is to be able to capture things whenever it's time to capture things. And tonight, what should have been a writing session will actually be the start of the recording of the song. And it means that she can go, well, do you want to put some drums on it next time you've got the drum set up? And off we go. Her lead vocal will probably be the lead vocal and then we build a track around the lead vocal. And for me, I love that. It means that every decision that you're making as you go along is built around a finished lead vocal. Generally, it means that you're reacting to the most important thing in the mix at all times. After working in the music industry for so long and in so many areas, finding exciting ways to create and write is very important to Michael. One of these methods is co-writing. Since I signed my most recent publishing deal about two or three years ago, I've been making songwriting a much more important part of what I do. And most of it is co-writing these days. I don't really do solo writing anymore. I've written a lot of my own records and I think I just kind of am bored with doing that. It's much more enjoyable sitting in a room, bouncing off somebody. The great thing about that is I don't have to write about my world. If I'm sitting with a 22-year-old girl who's going to make a country record, I can be writing for her world so I can get into her headspace. And mostly from a writing point of view, pretty much Every one of my writing sessions comes from two people just sitting around talking about life, talking about anything, because I'm a pretty good conversationalist. And we just talk. So the session will start with me just talking, asking some questions about stuff in a way that doesn't feel like we're doing a writing session. And then at some point, and it happens all the time, and it is this magical thing where we just feel like a conduit. Somebody says something and you go, that's actually a hook. And they go, what do you mean? You go, well, how about this? And they go, oh, yeah, and because that relates to this and relates to this, and bang, off you go. And then the process happens pretty easily after that, I think. I Like, it, like every other writer, I've got, I mean, I've got my iPhone with a notes thing, which has just got song titles, and there's a, at, at any given time there's anywhere between 25 and 40 songs that I'm going to write at some point. And often when it comes to doing co-writes, we'll have this conversation and get to a point where the artist is starting to get, well, are we going to get this going? And then I'll go, based on what we've just talked about, I reckon these three or four titles might work, and I'll watch them. I just watch them and I watch what they react to. And there's always a thing that they react to more than others. And I go, you seem to, your ears pricked up when I said that thing. And they go, yeah, that's really, really quirky. And I go, well, we can relate that to what we just talked about this way. And off we go. Being a sought-after musician, producer and engineer has allowed Michael to work with some incredible artists. The ability to adapt his processes and learn from these artists has given Michael the chance to continue growing as an artist himself. I mean, I've been really, really lucky to, to write with a lot of great writers and they've taught me a lot about looking for a better word, looking for a better phrase, being able to change the rhythm of what you do to take you down another path. The importance of building a narrative over the course of three minutes. The ability to do a twist on things, so to look at things in a way that seems cliche, but then you just bend a little bit of it to make it something that's interesting. So the, the, the song we're looking at today is a song called The Start of Being Alone. The whole point of it is, you know, you never think about there being a start point of being lonely or what it means or anything like that. And that was just a little twist where I was thinking I had a phrase in my head, but it, it just seemed very generic. And I was at Woolies getting some groceries or something like that. I had to get some something for the studio, probably toilet paper or something like that. And I was walking down to the car and I just, and I knew I had to write this song for this compilation and I was just twisting in my head and then it came and you can't end the start of being alone. Got to the car, found that hook, 
And from there, it just went bang, 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 bang. And by the time I'd gotten to the, back to the studio, which is only like a three-minute drive away, I'd stopped four times and sung bits into my phone and got back to the studio and just basically just dictated it and, and off it went. Um, I did do one thing with this one because it was, it was a solo, right? And I wasn't, at, I thought it was pretty good, but I wasn't convinced that it was as good as it could be. So one of my favourite writers is a, co-writers is a, is a girl called Katrina Burgoyne and she lives in Nashville now. And I saw that she was online and I just, I messaged her and said, what time is it in Nashville now? She said, oh, it's 11 o'clock. I said, are you awake? And she said, yeah, I usually stay up until about one. I said, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm just kind of writing. And I went, I've got a song that I think is good. Can you have a look at it? And she went, yeah, she'll send it over. And I sent it straight over to her. And she just went through and she went, I think you can write another this and you can do this. And you can. And she did the thing that good co-writers will do. We'll go, that's a good line, but I think we can say it better or whatever. And off we went. And she just fixed or adjusted a couple of things. And it made it, like she did 25% of the work. And I reckon it made it 50% better. And it's a kind of thing. Writing and producing to a brief is something that Michael is incredibly good at although he finds creating from scratch without any boundaries tends to be more rewarding. I've just finished the record with uh, a guy called Alan Caswell, one of the, probably the most recorded Australian songwriter ever, I think. He's mostly a country writer. He's very well known in that uh, world, but he's, he's written tons and tons of songs. And he and I were just getting together to do co-writes and it kind of evolved into being an album project. But we would come into these sessions without any preconceived idea of what the song was going to be. And it ended up, we just wrote a bunch of songs that were, I guess, encapsulating our view of what country music is. So there's a rockabilly thing on there and there's a Willie Nelson type thing on there and there's some Steve Earl, Tom Petty things on there and there's, you know, stuff that sounds like the band and they don't actually sound like any of these guys but they're just starting points and feel sort of thing. Other times we'll get calls or I'll get a call or Caswell will get a call and it'll be somebody going, I've got a record deal with ABC, they're expecting it to sell this amount of units so every song on this record needs to be a hit record and they'll come in and they're writing with us or writing with me with the eye of it being a single and so you know you can't do your quirky weird stuff because you know what the parameters are and so you tend to focus in a different way. Then actually not as much fun, but I understand that they're part of the process and that they're, they're great things for our career because we have a song that becomes a hit single or gets played and there's royalties and there's notoriety that comes from it as well. And so they're an important part of it. So it's a, it's a bit of both. There are times where people come in and they say, we need to write a single. And at that point, you've got your single hat on and you're going and listening to other people's singles and kind of going, right, that's where the rhythm is. That's where the, how long the song is. And you're looking at things like, okay, three minutes, 20, you know, this and this and this and this, start with a chorus or whatever. But other times when you're just writing for yourself, you're just going to go, right, where do we want to go today? And it really, and it is an adventure. It's great fun. Like many artists, Michael finds that an acoustic guitar, a vocal mic and good preparation is all that is needed to get the creative ball rolling. I'm one of those guys that I play drums and bass and guitar and and keyboards and listeners, this isn't a a put down. I'm exceedingly adequate on all of them and the fact that I'm not better at any one of them but I've done them all a lot so I know what the gig requires always at this point. But I'm a, I write on guitar and it, it really does depend on, I mean, usually it's a, an acoustic guitar, but sometimes literally an electric guitar will be closer. And so I just go and grab it. And I'm, look, I'm lazy. <laughs> oh, the acoustic guitar's all the way over there. The electric's over there. I just grabbed that one. Like I said, I like to start with a chorus idea. I still a big believer in the power of a good chorus. Um, so if you can start with a chorus idea and then you can take it wherever you want to take it from, from there, I find that that's a lot easier than writing verses and then having to search for a chorus that doesn't always work that well uh for me anyway 
And then usually my process is to go, at my studio I've always got a large diaphragm condenser plugged in and it'll either be an Audio-Technica 4050 or an OPR U87 or a 414 or U87. just depends on what microphone I've decided I want to put up in my room that week. This week it's been a U47 (laughs) has been the microphone that's just floating around in my room. So that's always ready to go. So what will normally happen at that point is I'll put down a guide acoustic guitar track. Usually it's just a plugged-in guide acoustic guitar track with a click track. We've worked out the tempo. And then I'll either sing it or the other singer, usually the other singer, will sing a guide vocal after the fact. Generally, my main acoustic is a, is a beautiful 1956 Gibson Southern Jumbo, uh, which is a beautiful, great intonation. It rings out really, really well. And on this song, I just went that straight into a preamp and I just played through the song. I knew where the arrangement was going to be. I knew the energy of the track and I knew what I wanted it to do in the song. Once that was done, I went and did a double track of it at Capo 5 and I had them down and they were always going to be keepers. I knew that they were going to be keepers. There's no need for me to go and replay them later on because my time after all these years is pretty good. So... I just played it. And then the next thing I did is I grabbed whatever microphone was plugged in at that point. I'm pretty sure for this one it was the OPR uh, U87 clone. And I just started singing it and I just brought lyrics up and I sung the lead vocal. There's one track of vocals, no alternate playlists and just a whole bunch of drop-ins. Would have gone through and sung it and then just gone and dropped in the bits that I knew I needed to sing down. The song is a song called The Start of Being Alone. Uh, This is a song by me, of me playing everything on it, actually. I was asked to contribute a song to an alt-country compilation record that a local label here is doing. The label insisted on it being a solo song, not one of my numerous projects, like I've got The April Family or my project with The Cuban Heels or the project with me and Caswell. They said, no, we want it to be you doing your version of an alt-country song, so that was nice. So I had on my to-do list for about two or three weeks, write song for compilation, I think I said. And so... As the deadline was getting closer, I became more aware of it. But I had an afternoon and I'd been talking to a good friend who was going through a pretty bad breakup at the time. And it just kind of came up and I was trying to put a positive spin on the whole thing. It's like, I just went, you know, you've got freedom and you've got, you know, this. And I know it's sad that that's happened, but there's a whole bunch of other good things. I'm going, okay, I want to try and find a way to make that work. And the word alone, and I'll start. And I just couldn't make it work and I was coming down the lift at Marketplace and I walked out of the lift and it went bang the start of being alone and I just went you can't end the start of being alone and so like I said that started ticking away in my head and straight away I started singing that melody and that melody had a rhythm to it so there was a tempo already starting to form. As soon as you started to think about that, you started to think about the style of what you wanted to record. And the lyric sheet has got a whole bunch of notes and it's quite detailed notes that say, you know, this snare drum, mic this way, these guitars, mic this way, no harmonies. And it says harmonica question mark because I didn't know whether I wanted to do that. So I had it all mapped out. And so once I started to record, it does feel like a join the dots exercise where you just kind of go, okay, well, there's the acoustic guitars. There's the lead vocal. We better do some guitars. Okay, the drums are going to be set up tomorrow. So I'll do the drums then off we go. It's a really big thing for me to to have a sense of the end point and then making my choices very early on in the piece. And that doesn't mean we can't veer off them or be inspired by the process, but I think that's a really great way to start to have a map and then you can just go through and tick the boxes and make sure that it works. And without sounding like an idiot about it, 99% of the time 
you could look at my productions and look at my notebook and I've just ticked off all the things that are in it and that's what ends up on the record, which is, I think that's just experience. These days, we can manipulate audio in a myriad of ways, regardless of the source. Michael finds that selecting the perfect sound or instrument even before putting it in front of a microphone delivers the goods every time. For a track like this, um, we're going for big open guitar sounds. There's going to be Hammond organ on it. There's going to be a pretty big drivey sort of bass. Generally, I've become really fond of amp simulators. I love guitar amps, and we've got great guitar amps at Love Hurt Studios, and um, I know what they sound like. But generally, when I'm trying to do things quickly, I'll just go to amp simulators until the point where I feel like the amp simulator isn't doing what I needed to do, which these days, and I'm mostly using Amplitude these days, I'm still kind of stuck in Amplitude 3, I think. The amount of times I go to a guitar amp is about never. Yeah, it might be one out of one out of 500 guitar tracks just because I've got my presets worked out. I know how to play into them. I've got a really good DI that I go into. And I think the most important thing is I do have a room full of guitars, you know, and I, it's one of those things where people will come into my studio and they go, why do you need so many guitars? I went, well, that one makes me play like this and that one makes me play like this and sounds like this. So rather than going, how do I make this guitar amp do something different? I find a guitar that makes me play differently and takes me into a different headspace. And it's the same story with drums and basses and, and stuff like that. You can have a drum and try and tune it 10 different ways or you can have a bunch of snare drums that you know sound great doing that thing and you just never question it. So for this track, there's a Gretsch Tennessean, a nice old Gretsch Tennessean that I know sounds really big for open tremolo sort of thing. So that's going into an AC30 simulation. AC30, a Vox AC30 is my favourite amp. And it's one of those funny things where I think on this particular day there was a Vox AC30 set up in my room that I was playing earlier on in the day, but I still went with the amp simulator because it was closer. And I, and I think it had to do too with the fact that I could time the tremolo. I could act, there's the tremolo on, on there and it was just going to be easy for me to get the, the tremolo in sync because it's doing long kind of chords. I think that that's got something to do with it as well. So yeah, that, I mean, again, I stress to people that the amplitude thing or the amp simulator thing is based on me standing in front of guitar amps for 35 years you know, and going, that's a good guitar sound and that's not, and that's a good guitar sound and that's not, and listening to a whole bunch of different combinations of guitars and amps and going, right, I know what the sound is supposed to be, let's dial up a simulation and if it doesn't work, then you go to guitar amps. I love micing up guitar amps. I do it more for other people's sessions than I do for mine, but because of the aforementioned laziness. <laughs> and I'm happy with the results I get, so, you know. Oh, okay, so there was a really cool thing that happened with this one. My career has largely been defined as me being a power pop artist. You know, if you think about the Beatles and the Beach Boys and the Birds and Badfinger and the Raspberries and, and Big Star, so it's short, tight, classic almost 60s-based pop songs with big harmonies and, and that sort of vibe. You know, if you listen to Paperback Rider by The Beatles or I Can See For Miles by The Who or No Matter What by Badfinger, you're going to get a general idea of what power pop is. No matter what you are. And it's kind of my default way to write songs, except now I'm moving over into alt-country sort of world and this was a track that had been requested to be on an alt-country compilation record. So I put the track together and I did the track and I hadn't put the harmonica on it because I didn't feel like I'd need it because there was a, a guitar riff that I thought was strong enough. And my trusty assistant, Kylie Whitney, who has been working with me for six or seven years, she came in just before I was about to start mixing it. She came in for the day at the studio. And I said, I've got to play this track, but I need to ask you an honest question. And she went, what's the question? I said, is it alt country? So I played her the, the rough mix and she got to the end of it. She said, Michael, that's a really good song. It's a power pop song. And I went, right. 
And she went, it's just, it's got the really strong drums and you're playing into it. I can hear that there's a bit of a country thing in it, but it's not enough. And certainly the mix, even in rough mix mode, doesn't sound like the sort of old country records that we listen to. And we went, okay, so we needed to go into research mode. So for the next 45 minutes, we went and played, you know, the Drive-By Truckers and Jason Isbell and, you know, early Wilco records and Steve Earle records. And we just made notes about what classic old country records sounded like, Buddy Miller records. And it tended to be that the drums were further back and a bit more ambient and a bit more raw sounding. The guitars were up. So the acoustic guitars and electric guitars were up. And if there's an opportunity to put a harmonica on things, you put the harmonica on things. And so she went, you need to put the harmonica on. So we took five minutes to just put the motif that appears three times in the track. And then the mix was really quick. I think the mix only took me like about 40 minutes. I don't agonise over mixing, especially for stuff that I've conceptualised and mic'd a particular way and stuff like that. The mixes are pretty much defined as I'm going in. But there was a template and the template was the drums needed to be noisier but lower in the mix and the guitars needed to be loud and the vocal needed to be up front and the bass needed to be driving. And so Kylie actually had to duck out and by the time she came back, she walked in and she went, now it sounds like an old country track. And it did. And, it, and um, I sent it off to the people who were doing the compilation and they were really, really happy with the aesthetic and how it hung together. Getting attached to an early version of a track is a common problem amongst musicians. Often it can narrow the scope of creativity when writing. When it came to the start of being alone, Michael went against his own advice and referenced his demo version more than he usually would. I don't normally listen to progress mixes of anything, actually. I always put progress mixes in a Dropbox for the client to listen to, and I never, ever listen to them. Um, and I warn clients about the idea of over-listening to them and getting too attached to, to rough mixes because there's danger in that. But this one I'd actually listened to quite a lot and was, was pretty happy with where it was going and thought it was country enough. So this is just a raw, rough mix. When I listened to that rough mix, I'd kind of thought I'd be going for a pretty clean, crisp sort of thing. For any of the listeners out there who uh, know the Tom Petty Wildflowers record or Rick Rubin Productions in general, always really, really dry, really, really crisp. I wasn't going to use any of the room mics or anything like that on the drums, but that was completely un-anything. I think I had a little bit of compression on the lead vocal there, so that was just the flat, rough mix. And I went, yep, okay, I can hear it being that. But then we went and did our research and realised we needed to approach it differently. That's kind of how it ended up. So a lot noisier and guitars are right up the front and the vocal's sitting in a little bit more but really heavily compressed and just peering its way through the track. And it's probably got more in common, I guess, with an Exile on Main Street kind of Rolling Stones kind of loose sort of mix where the vocal is a little bit more buried than I normally would go about it. But I was really happy with that and obviously the added harmonica, which... Is, is there. And it's funny because I, I hadn't ever really heard the two mixes back to back, but the rough mix actually feels slower now. It's not. <laughs> of course it's not, but there's a completely different sort of energy with the way that we, we went with it. 
pretty lucky in the fact that I've put together a good sort of rig, apart from having a whole bunch of really great drums. The drums are going through a bunch of Neve 1073s and just some Neve preamps in general. You've got your kick, snare, rack, and floor tom, and your overheads are all going through Neve things, and everything else is going through custom-made preamps. They're actually Nick Franklin NF Audio preamps that were made. I guess one of the things that was funny about this one is I always have a pair of ribbon microphones just in XY configuration at the back of the room. My room isn't big. You could either consider it to be a small drum room or a big drum booth. It's something in between that. But they always sit at the back of the room just sitting on top of uh, where my outboard is. And I don't use them that often, but the way we put together the mix, if we listen to um, the drum sub mix here... And then I'll probably just mute the room sound and you can hear. So they're they're making up a big part of uh, a big part of the track. And I've EQ'd out a lot of this the assembly kind of stuff that happens with room mics and then hit them pretty heavily with the plug-in version of the distressor, the arouser, and then EQ'd it again after that to just tame some of the top end. You know, the room mics, these innocuous little room microphones end up being probably 70% of the drum sound and definitely pushed it from being this tight thing to being a much more rambunctious kind of feeling thing. And I'm a big fan of the idea of things that sound loud but being quiet in a mix. I mean, one of my favourite, favourite aspects of the Led Zeppelin records, for example, is the fact that John Bonham sounds like he's making a massive racket, but often he's tucked away in a mix behind the guitars and basses. So it's the idea of a loud thing turned down. So it's something that there's a perceived loudness and turning it down. And also the other way where you will play something quietly and turn it up so you can get all the resonance out of tones and stuff like that. It's a really, really important aspect of what we do to make sure that you're messing a little bit with context of things. So I love the fact that that sounded like a big noisy thing that we just then buried behind the acoustic guitars. So if we bring in the drums and the acoustic guitars, you should be able to get a sense of where what's carrying the track. So... Chuck in the bass. And from that, you can see that you, the acoustic guitars aren't just an arbitrary little thing that we're just putting on there for icing. They're a percussive instrument, you know. They're, they're EQ'd in a way that a lot of the body is out of it so they're not getting in the way of the electric guitars, which are also panned kind of almost hard left and hard right. But there's a big percussive element that comes from those acoustic guitars. So the drums are almost undefined. I ended up muting the hi-hat track and turning the overheads down and the room mics are up so that the drums, the top end of the drums, is reasonably unfocused because the top end eighth note kind of strum of the acoustic guitars is the thing that's carrying the track in a lot of ways. And certainly I think that that's when we looked at the rough mix compared to this. I think the thing that was missing from the rough mix is the fact that the acoustic guitars are just, oh yeah, they're, they're in there as well, but down in the mix and we're relying on the drums to carry it. But in actual fact, a lot of the energy comes from, from the acoustic guitar. One of the things I think that I've always been surprised about when I really listen to some of my favourite records is how artfully people use compression. And it's not subtle, you know, um, and it is a thing where the acoustic guitars would have been compressed probably at a 12 to 1 ratio on my 1176. Most of my overdubs are going through either a Neve 1073 into an 1176 or a Universal Audio M610 valve preamp into an 1176, but the 1176 always stays at 12 to 1 ratio. I don't actually even touch the 1176 hardly ever. 
You know, the input and output are 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. The attack is almost on full but backed off maybe 10 15%, and the release is backed off 5%, and it's a 12 to 1 ratio. And pretty much all my overdubs, acoustic guitars, electric guitars when they're, when they're going through amps, basses, vocals, tambourines and stuff like that are going through that same chain. Again, because it's just quick, it's always plugged in and it's ready to go. So the acoustic guitars, when they were going down, were probably compressing 5 to 10 dB on the big stuff, but pretty consistently through the whole track. So they're just really just sitting where they're meant to sit and, and not moving and they're strong and they work into, into the rhythmic aspect of the way that I like to play. And there's a bit in the middle section where it gets a bit nice and pretty. Now where it goes finger picky, I think. You'll be tapping away in the background. Two acoustic guitars, one capo at capo five, the other one wide open. So playing different positions. So even though it's the same acoustic guitar, you're getting a slightly different inversion happening. And so you're getting this nice little bit of chorusing going on. That's a pretty standard thing for me to do from there. One of the things I'm really proud of is this delicate art of weaving that I learnt from the Rolling Stones and from all my favourite pairs of guitar players, Tom Petty and Mike Campbell and Keith Richards and Ronnie and you know the two guitar players and Badfinger and the Beatles and stuff like that. So you get this. So that's the SG at the left and the Gretsch Tennessee at the right. So just nice and rich. So they're, they're definitely rhythm guitar, lead guitar dude, but they're kind of working around each other and you just got to get into a different headspace with that. So yeah, really good fun and great fun to play into and, and stuff. And there's an extra guitar player that's doing the solo that happens later on. Uh, the only other thing is the greatest sound in the history of recorded sound has to be this guy. That's a not very polite Hammond M100 into a Leslie and, and push pretty hard. It's, and it's, it's a real thing. And, I, and I've got, there's, there's great Hammond organ simulators out there and then there's that. And I've studied and worked and I've mic'd up Hammonds any way I possibly could to try and work out the way I like it. With this Leslie cabinet the, and with any kind of Leslie, I think it's one, two, two cabinets, my favourite way is a mic on the bottom rotor, mic on the top rotor and just pan them hard left and hard right. That way you do get that whole lower stuff is panned more to the left and higher stuff is panned more to the right. Just the natural balance of the thing. And it means that when you do glisses, the gliss where you do your whole rocking up and down the keys, you do get this left to right movement. And so, and I've got mics permanently attached to that thing which means I'm ready to go on Hammond tracks pretty quickly with things and I have a great time with it. Um, and I guess the only other aspect of this is the lead vocals so we're going to listen to my vocal solo in public. Good luck. It's not as easy as you thought it'd be All the liberty ain't made you free Why'd it take so long to finally see I've got a pretty standard sort of thing. Again, it's it, for this it would have been the Universal Audio, so it would have been the U87 clone into the Universal Audio, into the 1176. At this point, my mic technique is actually pretty good, so quite keen on using the proximity effects and really getting a sense of being able to lean in closer. And when I'm doing big stuff, I'm pulling away from the microphone. But I'm compressing in the, with the 1176 at a pretty constant 10 dB worth of gain reduction going in. And then when I'm mixing, I'm doing a high-pass filter. I, there's, there's a little bit of a high-pass filter going in. There's definitely a high-pass filter set pretty extremely at about 120 hertz. Then it's compressed really, really heavily with at an 8 to 1 ratio with the distressor on this one. I'm used to, using some saturation on it, so you heard some drivey stuff. I'm actually really digging into that. I like that sound. Um, so it's going pretty hard. 
There's a Diessa. I use my favourite Diessa still is the Waves Renaissance Diessa. And I've got a whole bunch of presets that I've created with that, whereas just grabbing most of the big stuff. With DSing, it seems to be a really big problem uh, for a lot of people not being able to get their head around it. Don't be scared to go in there and actually go and find the S and turn it down. Now with clip gain and stuff like that, it's actually easier sometimes rather than trying to futz around with DSs and getting them right or automating them to just go and find the bit that's Sing too much and just go and select it and just turn it down 10 dB. Just do a nice crossfade on either side and you'd never have to think about it. So I wouldn't go so far saying I go and do that with every vocal on every S because it's just just hard work and it's time consuming but if there's any that I can't get my head around rather than keep on changing my DS settings I'll go in there and just find the S's and just modify them and on pretty much every mix there'll be three or four that it just cause me problems that might be more of a ch sound or a bit too high or a bit too low for my DSR and it's just easier to go and manage them. Um, I've got a bit of a paranoia about um, the high nasally tone of my voice and so I tend to always duck either 5k or 7k. I usually use some sort of Pultec mid-range EQ simulation because they're quite broad and then again if I'm seeing something up and vibey like that I will try and add a bit more body back into it and so I'm usually adding in around 300 hertz. And then I'm uh, for something like this, I'm adding a lot of top end, just air, and I'm having that sit up around either 12K or 16K, again, on a Pultec type EQ. So it's just adding air and quality back in, mainly to, to compensate a little bit for the DSing process. I find that the vocal always comes out a bit duller from a perception point of view when I've DSed it. So it adds a bit of the silky sort of colour thing to it. And that's pretty much it. I've, on, on my master bus, I compress. Uh, I'm usually using, these days I'm using the slate. So it's a master bus compressor thing and I use the very new version of that. Two different EQs, one taking care of bottoms and tops, so quite broad, and then an SSL bus EQ as well, just taking care of the mid-ranges. You're ducking out some low mids and adding a little bit of high mids just to make it feel a bit more like a record. So I'm sitting there and like I've got a microphone draped over my face in front of the computer screen and I'm holding a lyric sheet, you know, with all my notes on it and, you know, the computer's... I'm running things off a laptop so the computer's only a couple of metres away and, yeah, there's noise. I never, too, I never worry too much about stuff like that because you're never going to hear it in between all the other crap that's going on on the track anyway. Yeah, and, and I liked hearing there. I could hear where some of the drop-ins were and it was nice. I haven't heard the vocal soloed for a couple of months now, but I remembered, okay, I dropped in that because I was trying to do a different inflection and trying to say something different with that or I didn't sing it well enough on the first pass. But, yeah, you've got to leave stuff like that in because it, it is real and you don't need to sanitise your tracks to within an inch of their life. And there are times I go and turn up breaths, you know, where I'll automate the breath where I go, we're getting to a big bit, I want to hear the dude really going for it and he's going to take a big breath before you do it. One of the biggest changes to my processes and the plugin that I love and should be essential for everybody who is mixing is it's a thing called Magic AB. It's by Sample Magic. And what you can do is you load it into your master bus after you've got all your master bus compressions and EQ and you load up a bunch of your favourite sounding tracks, tracks that you know sound good everywhere. And it doesn't even have to be in the same sort of genre, although I've got a bunch of different ones from country and rock and big Nashville sounding things and more rootsy sort of things. And before I sign off at any mix, I'll go and compare my mix because you can level match them and you just flip between the record and our record and from there you can kind of go right okay need, mine needs a little bit more bass and I tell you mastering guys love you because you're doing a bit of work and I'm actually going to I'm going to show you how that works so I'm going to play you my reference track which is a song by the Courtyard Hounds called The Coast
Now, the thing about that that I think is really important, their record was done by one of the best recording engineers and producers around, a guy called Jim Scott, one of my favourite guys in the whole world. That's the mastered, finished mix, mixed through an analogue console to tape, the whole bells and whistles, the whole thing, and my raw mix before it goes off to mastering is in the ballpark of that. I think it's, it's a pretty much foolproof way of working if you're doing just to, and I don't spend a lot of time on it. It's just basically to go, right, where's the bottom end? Where's the top end? Is the vocal sounding quality enough? And the balance is what they're meant to be. Now, I'm not trying to sound like the courtyard hounds in any way, but I sit there and go, right, I want my vocal to be lower than theirs. So, right, is it lower? Yes, it is. Is a depth of field where they need to be? Is a stereo width where it needs to be? And I've probably done 10,000 mixes in my life. I've used something like that or a version of that for most of them. I'll get to that point where I think I'm 95% finished with a mix. I do a little bit of comparing with tracks that I know sound good and I realise I'm only 75% through the mix. And that's what makes mixes better. So in every mix I do, I'll get to a certain point where I'll go, I think I'm almost done. Then I go and listen to some good sounding reference tracks. I'm talking about the songs that you play anywhere and they sound great. The bottom end is great. The top end is great. Separation, all that stuff that you want. And you go and listen to yours and go, right, actually, I need to turn the bass up a bit more. I need to add a, bit, a clearer delineation between the kick drum and the bass guitar. The acoustic guitar and the electric guitars are mushed in too much, whatever. And it just is a little check for you to, before you sign off on it. It works really well. And the last thing on every mix that I do, no matter where, I always mix the bass last. So I'll go through and I mix the drums, bring in the guitars, bring in the vocal. And then once I've got everything else sorted out, I bring in the bass last, compress it, spend a little bit of time soloing on it, and then I turn it up and settle in the mix. And then I go through all the balancing. And there's lots and lots of little automations on all my mixes. I sit there and I'll do with my faders. I've got a, a bunch of, I've got 24 faders in the studio locked into my Pro Tools rig. And I'll just put everything in touch automation. And as I hear, something that needs to be turned up I'll just go and ride things so even on this track which is a really simple sort of thing the drum submix has got rides on it the bass has got rides on it the acoustic guitars have got rides on it so there's just bringing up all these little events once I've done all that I'm ready to sign off on the mix I go to the bass track and I turn it up 3 dB every mix and I sit there and I go at some point I'm going to listen to this and go the bass is too loud I've been doing that for 10 years and not once have I sit there and gone the bass is too loud because we tend to just forget about the bass I mean I tend to just forget about the bass I don't know whether that the people do it. But it's been a thing where I get to the end of a mix, ready to sign off on it, and I go, let's turn the bass up. Turn the bass up and listen to it, and I go, okay, that's where it probably needed to be in the first place. And that's the process. Thank you for listening to Silent Studios. I'm Cameron Young. For more information on this artist or any of the artists featured on Silent Studios, please visit silentstudios.com.au.